My name is Bernie. I'm one of the elders here. And uh, we are going to now look to God's Word. We're continuing through our series, passage by passage, verse by verse, through uh, the gospel according to Mark. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 12. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack right in front of you. It's on page 845 of the pew Bible, Mark 10, 1 through 12. I want to welcome, a special welcome to uh, all of the kids, the grade school kids who are with us this morning for family day. Um, Great to to see your faces. Um, You guys and and little ladies should have an outline there, and we'll see how I do sticking to that. Hopefully you can fill in all the blanks there. I'm no Mr. J. Call or Justin Barada, but uh, hopefully I will be able to fill in for the morning for you guys. So, but glad to, glad to have all the, the kids with us this morning. Mark chapter 10, we we'll to be looking at verses 1 through 12. This is God's Word. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered again to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Would you again just bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we look to you for your aid and help now. By your spirit, open your word to us. Feed us. Teach us. Correct us. Strengthen us. For your honor and your glory, may your word take root in our lives and bring forth fruit to bring praise to your name. And now, God, as we, as we look at Mark 10, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, a rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, if you weren't here, or if you were, last week, Levi taught us from Mark uh, 9, 42 through 50, and his conclusion from that passage was that Jesus was teaching the, the serious and demanding requirements of discipleship, serious and demanding. And many of us uh, heard that word that, that Levi taught, and, and we may have responded, I'm in, I, I will follow, 
But perhaps nowhere is our resolve to follow Jesus, to be submitted to Jesus, to joyfully embrace the teaching of Jesus. Nowhere is that more tested than in the face of this passage in which he teaches on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I know there are many present in this room who have lots of personal experience, uh, lots of personal history, experience with emotions about uh, these issues that Jesus teaches about here in Mark 10. In fact, for some of you, your relationship that you're in right now is one in which you feel stuck. It's an, it feels like an awful, life-sapping marriage, and, and you would love nothing more than to just get out, to call it quits. Some of you are divorced, and you feel betrayed and brutalized by the years of just emotional battle that was waged. Some of you have been divorced and remarried. Some of you are eagerly looking forward to marriage. You're, you're looking around saying, who's my spouse going to be? And as all of us in any of those groups listen to this text, I, I want to begin with this gentle warning. We, we must not allow our, our past experiences, hurts, or even our present feelings to determine what is acceptable and good, or what is lawful and right. But instead, we must process those feelings, those emotions, those hurts, based on what God has revealed, what he has declared. We must allow God's good and gracious law to frame our outlook, our posture towards life. And this isn't just some random teaching from Jesus that that Mark decides to to include here in chapter 10 because he didn't know where else to stick it. This passage is in the midst of a a several chapter chunk, you've heard Levi say it a few times, on what it means to follow Jesus. This is in a several chapter summary of Jesus' teaching on discipleship. So what Jesus is doing here in Mark, in t- Mark 10, 1 through 12, is showing us that discipleship involves an opposition to breaking down what God has built. Discipleship involves an opposition to breaking down what God has built up. And our passage opens with some religious leaders uh, coming to Jesus and questioning questioning him about marriage and divorce. We're told in verse 2 that it wasn't honest inquiry, it wasn't an honest question, it was was intentionally to test him or to trap him. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, and Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They want to know whether God authorizes or whether God permits divorce. 
Now, it might be helpful to know um, that the question of divorce, its permissibility, and under what circumstances was um, maybe a more hotly debated issue in Jesus' time than it is in our own. There were at least two main schools of thought in Judaism, in the Judaism of Jesus' day. There was, uh, there was one rabbi named Shammai, and he said that uh, divorce, yes, it was permissible in, in very narrow cases, in cases um, relating to adultery. And there was another rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, who uh, uh, taught the permissibility of divorce even if your wife um, burnt your steak. You wanted it medium well, she made it well done. It's that ridiculous, but that was his position. Uh, another rabbi came uh, along just a few decades later, a little bit after, after Jesus, um, but suggested that was, divorce was permitted even if the guy found another woman more attractive. Really not much different than our day. But instead of answering the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife by riffing off of any one of these main schools of thought that that were so prominent in Jesus' day, Jesus, as was his custom as we know him, he turns the tables on his questioners and he asks them, what did Moses say? What does the Old Testament teach? And in verse 4, we see, we see their response. Look at it. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, you might decide, hey, I'm going to track down this Old Testament text and find out where Moses commanded this or allowed this, as they say. And I think you'll do so with some frustration, The passage to which they and and Jesus subsequently are referring is probably Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And I want to be clear what they are appealing to and what Jesus is going to kind of um, set aside and move on from. So I want that to be clear in our mind. So let's turn to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. You'll find it on page 165 of your pew Bibles. Deuteronomy 24. Remember, they said Moses allowed a man to write a a certificate of divorce and send her away. And I want you to keep those words in mind as we read Deuteronomy 24. And I want you to hear what Moses actually commands in this passage. So as you read this passage, what does Moses actually command? What is the command here? It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. 
Now what I hope you, you can recognize that in these four verses, there is one and only one command or prohibition. And it comes at the last part of that passage in verse four. He may not take her again to be his wife. All the other phrases leading up to that in the first three verses are, are, are descriptive, setting up the scenario in which the command is given, he may not take her again to be his wife. There's, there's no command. It's when this happens, and if this happens, and if this happens, and when this happens, then he may not take her again. If a couple gets married, if he writes her a certificate of divorce, if she gets remarried, if that husband dies, then the original couple can't get remarried. That's the sum and substance of what Moses is teaching there in Deuteronomy 24. And notice that the verses do not institute divorce. They merely outline what is prohibited after divorce. So if we want to summarize what the Old Testament witness is to divorce, I think the best we're going to do is this, is that the Old Testament assumes the existence of divorce. It doesn't say it's good. It doesn't command it in certain situations. It, it doesn't give a green light when circumstances are catastrophic. It simply assumes like this passage, the existence of divorce. So when, the, when Jesus asked the question, what did Moses say? And the Pharisees answer in this way, Jesus responds. Let's look at how Jesus responds back in Mark 10. Jesus responds in verse five with this. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment because of your hardness of heart. So Jesus reveals a divine concession. The presence of divorce in the Old Testament was a divine concession to hard-hearted human sinfulness. You see Jesus saying that. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this. Well, what's hardness of heart? It's a heart unreceptive to God's lordship, to God's leading. It's, it's sinfulness. Because of your sinfulness, he wrote you this. In other words, as, as one commentator notes, Deuteronomy 24 was given as instructions for a pilot when the plane is going to crash because he uh, intentionally ignored the instructions of the creator of the plane. The creator of the plane says, this is how the plane is to be, fl to be flown. And, and the pilot just completely ignores that, and as a result, the plane is crashing and Deuteronomy 24 is given as instructions. Uh, okay, what do I do now? We're like, we're nosediving. 
A a worst case scenario emergency plan is, is not the basis on which you make decisions to fly a plane day by day. Right? Instructions on how to approach a potential remarriage situation after a divorce are are not a solid source from which to to make plans in a marriage. Does that make sense? And that's why, after saying it's because of your hardness of heart, your sinfulness, that Moses wrote that, that's why Jesus immediately transitions their thoughts in order to answer their question, because remember, what was the question? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He transitions their thought to a more suitable Old Testament text for the topic at hand. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Look at his response. Verse six. But from the beginning of creation, notice he changes, but... But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So what Jesus is doing here is he's grounding God's creative design for marriage in Genesis chapter 1. Because here Jesus is quoting Genesis 1.27. Genesis 1.27 says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then he quickly adds a a verse that follows shortly after. He quickly begins to quote Genesis 2.24. Verse seven, it's a quotation from Genesis 2.24. Therefore, because of this, God made them male and female, therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, verse 8, and the two shall become one flesh. So in order to answer their question about marriage properly, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus is giving a foundation for marriage and he's giving a definition of marriage. And in verse 8, Jesus adds some commentary to this quotation from Genesis 2.24. Kind of emphasizes it. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. So in this passage, Jesus reminds us of something God revealed from creation. He reveals the divine design. And that is this. Marriage is the divine creation of a one flesh union from a man and a woman. Marriage is the divine creation of a one flesh union from a man and a woman. And I don't wanna gloss over that statement quickly, so let's consider the first part of that. Marriage is a divine creation. Notice that in our passage, Jesus says, um, God made them male and female. Right, God's making, God's creativity. God made them male and female. And then look at the beginning of verse nine with me. What therefore God has joined together. So he's referring to marriage and he's saying what marriage is what God has joined together. Marriage is God's creation. Marriage is God's work. 
Marriage belongs to God. He gets to define marriage. He gets to define, uh, determine how it's lived out, how it's entered into, how it's enjoyed. Marriage is a divine creation. It's God's work. And the day and age we live in essentially says that marriage is a piece of paper. It's an agreement between two people. It's an expression of love. It's a symbolic enshrinement of our feelings. No, no, no. Marriage is not that. Marriage is first and foremost the work of God. It's, divine by, it's defined by the presence of, of his creative hand. And therefore, since he defines it, he created it, we don't get to reduce it to feelings or emotions or convenience. And, and what God created isn't intended simply to, to make me feel good, to make you feel good. It's not something giving to us to help us feel fulfilled in life. It's a miracle of taking two things and making them one. Taking two people and, and making them one flesh. They are bound together inseparably in a covenant commitment. Two becomes one. It's not just a comfortable coupling. It's not a comfortable convenience. It's a covenant commitment to become one flesh. So marriage is the divine creation. It's God's work. Of a one flesh union from a man and a woman. Now, Try as we might to escape the obvious implications of this, we cannot. In the beginning, God made them male and female. That's what we read in Genesis 1.27. That's what we read in verse 6 of Mark 10. What does Jesus do here? At a really basic level, what Jesus does here is Jesus affirms gender distinctions. And we're, we're living in a time in which we're attempting to redefine reality. We say, no, gender is a social construct. It's not something objective. It's something we just kind of, you know, culture defines it for us. But notice that God's creative activity in the beginning made them binary, male, and female. And Jesus not only believes this, he reaffirms it. We're not loving and compassionate if along with our culture we deny this creation reality. We're not caring to, to buy into a distortion of, of God's reality because this is really an ideology about autonomy, about freedom from God, about a declaration of independence from the creator, the designer. 
We're, we're supplanting God as the one who speaks things into existence from nothing. Remember, God spoke male and female into existence. If we were to go back to Genesis 1, we would hear the words, and God said, and God said, and God said, and it was. That's what we read in Genesis 1. But today we hear people declare, I say, I am. I say, I am. You see, this is... This is a declaration of independence, a rebellion, a coup against the creator, king, autonomy, seeking autonomy from God's rule, from his design, and it's not caring to support that. Jesus reaffirms gender, one man, one woman. But there's another implication here from which we must not close our eyes and and plug our ears and, and run screaming. See, Jesus is excluding homosexual unions. After saying God made them male and female, in verse seven he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to a woman, his wife. And and at this point, I want to just again remind us because I think for some of us, probably our, our feathers feel a little bit ruffled that marriage is God's work. It's his creation. He designed it. He gets to define it. Our culture does not. Our legislature does not. Our courts do not. Marriage is God's. And, and some people say that Jesus had nothing to say about homosexuality, and, and so it's okay. Let's just for a moment, suspend reality and say he didn't. That's an attempt to divide Jesus from his commissioned, appointed messengers who went out with his word and very, very clearly spoke about human sexuality. So that maneuver is illegitimate on its own face. But it's wrong here on multiple fronts because we see Jesus himself reasserts that marriage is the one flesh union of male and female that God created from the beginning. So we've just seen that Jesus defined marriage as God's work, taking a man and woman and making them one flesh. So if marriage is God's work, what should we think of divorce? Remember, that's the question that started this whole, this whole passage out. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife in verse 2? And Jesus gives a warning, a command in verse 9. After he's discussed marriage from Genesis, what God's design and intention for it is, here's his command in verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what he's saying is, what God has done, humans must not attempt to undo. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And so Jesus' command tells us about uh, the, the nature of divorce. Divorce is an effort to destroy what God has designed. 
It makes sense. God designed it. God created it. Divorce, let not man separate what God has joined together. Divorce is an effort to destroy what God has designed. And we must not attempt to break down what God has built. It's a divine command. And and so from this, we learn something new about marriage that we haven't from the previous verses necessarily, is that this one flesh union is created by God, that was created by God, it's intended to be permanent. You might be thinking, well, yeah, it's, it, it's meant to be permanent. Yeah, of course, but, but you don't know my situation. I'm married to a lazy trunk. She's put us such a bankruptcy by her continual spending, maxing out the credit cards and not paying the bills. She is a nasty, cold woman. He's just really let himself go. He's, he's emotionally aloof. He never really talks to me. All he does is scream. He's always angry. So when some of us hear the words, marriage is a, is a one flesh union created by God which is intended to be permanent. When, when some of us hear that divorce is an attempt to, uh, to tear down what God has designed, what, to break down what God has built up, we remember saying, yes, but, but you don't understand my situation. If I had something a little different, a little better, I wouldn't want to deconstruct it. And I want to say this, I'm sure I, I don't understand even a fraction of some of the heartbreak that, that some of you have experienced. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the agony. I, I don't know the loneliness I can't necessarily feel the feelings, which I'm sure maybe you can't even verbalize completely. I can't imagine what you've gone through. And I'm so sorry that you've had to experience the effects of this fallen world of sin as you have. No one should really have to endure such relational hardship. No one. But I just want to take us back to the definition of marriage. It's not a convenience. And it certainly isn't in your case, but it's never... A convenience. It's, it's not a, a mutually agreed upon arrangement as long as we make each other happy. And then when we don't, well, we just really need to get out of this. This is a disaster. We need to move on. It's a lifelong commitment designed by God in which he makes a one flesh union of two people. 
And he does this not necessarily to make us happy, but to make us holy. The two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Please don't hear me saying that. But marriage is intended by God to to rub off the the rough edges, to sand off the rough edges of our life. Our our marital union isn't intended, its primary purpose is not self-fulfillment, but sanctification. Marriage is intended by God to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So if we, if we run from one of the primary things God uses to that end, then we might be running from his purposes for our lives. You might say, I, I'm not so sure about this permanent thing. So yes, Jesus commands not to divorce, not to separate what, what God's brought together, but is it really permanent? Well, if we look at verses 10 through 12, it's a conversation that Jesus had privately with his disciples. It only confirms our understanding that marriage is permanent. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And what I, what I hope you see here is the divine logic. Divorce does not make the covenant commitment null and void. But divorce does make adulterers of those who enter into another marriage. Verse 11 says that If a guy, he remarries, what happens? He's committing adultery against his first wife. The logic is, you're still in a one flesh union with that woman. Even though you might have court documents in front of you that say you're not. How else are you committing adultery against that woman? Well, you're married to her. That's, you can only commit adultery if you're married to someone. And so Jesus assumes that the one flesh union is still intact. It's still in place. This is infidelity. It's, it's adultery. You're stepping out on her. You're cheating on her. You're being unfaithful to her because the two of you are still really united as one flesh. There's really no other way of understanding this teaching he gave to his disciples in this house. Divorce does not make the covenant commitment null and void, and this declaration about adultery really only serves to warn us against entering another marriage, warns us from heading down that path. Now, historically, segments of Christianity find an exception to this prohibition, this absolute prohibition against divorce and remarriage, um, and the church does so in cases of adultery. There's a parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew. We find it in Matthew 19. And uh, Matthew 19.9, Jesus says this. It's a verse uh, just like the one we read here, In verse 11, 
But there are four words of Jesus that Matthew includes, not found here in Mark. Matthew 19.9 says this, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Matthew includes a, a narrow exception, except for sexual immorality, except for porneia. Porneia, that word, maybe you should ring a bell in your head, you know a word that comes from that Greek term. It means sexual immorality. And godly leaders have, in the church have read this exception, except for porneia, as, as either um, unfaithfulness in the betrothal period or adultery in marriage. Most commonly, it's, it's one of those two things. And, and that being the case, there is the conviction held by, by godly Christian men and women in historic orthodoxy that says that a spouse may choose on occasion to seek a divorce and be permitted to remarry if their spouse has been unfaithful to him, to, her, to him or her. So I don't want to leave that out of what we're saying here this morning. But, but what we hear Jesus saying in Mark is that divorce does not make the covenant commitment null and void. And, and we could work our way through lots of passages this morning on, on marriage, divorce, remarriage. We can't deal with every passage that speaks to it. We're constrained by our time to really considering what Mark 10 brings to our attention. And the question that was posed was, is it lawful for a man to seek a divorce? And after Jesus teases out the Pharisees' assumptions about divorce. Jesus teaches that marriage is the work of God, the creation of God, God's activity in creating a permanent one flesh union between a man and a woman. And privately, he tells his disciples that attempting to remarry after divorce, after separating what God has joined together, only amounts to adultery. So what do we do with all this? What are the implications for our lives? And I, I want to speak to, to four uh, distinct groups. Those who are single, those who aren't married. Those who are married. Those who have been divorced and those who have been divorced and are now subsequently remarried. Let me start with those who are single. And this includes you kids. I think this passage challenges so many of the assumptions that we hear about marriage in our culture. That it's, um, that it's a convenience and, and once it's too much of a burden, it's disposable. It's a consumable product. And Mark 10 confronts the picture of marriage painted by the world. In, instead of um, viewing marriage as a personal choice, let's reshape our thinking 
and look at marriage not as personal choice, but as God's creative activity. Think of it in terms of God's activity, God's creation, God's work. Instead of thinking about it solely in terms of what feelings or emotions another uh, person kind of stirs in us, we should begin to embrace the truth that marriage is a lifelong covenant commitment. Right, so it's, it's not merely living life alongside of another, it's, it's living life with one, becoming one with them. So in, in thinking about a possible spouse, don't get caught up in all the transient stuff. Right, all the transient externals, um, looks and financial security, those things, they might depart. Instead, ask, to whom can you commit yourself for a lifetime for the glory of God? Right, and, and I'm not saying you have to go out and find somebody to marry that repulses you. No, like, okay, like, hear that. But, but really, we should be asking the question, to whom can I commit my life to this woman and serve her in such a way, laying down my life for her as Christ laid down his life for the church. Can I, can I serve her in that way for the glory of God for a lifetime? That should be primary in our thinking. Not what feelings or emotions she stirs up in me. You who are married, you will, if you have not already, inevitably hit some potholes in the road some potholes that at times will seem like deep sinkholes. You will be disappointed by your spouse. Maybe you're newly married or you're about to get married. You think, no way, that's not. You will be disappointed by your spouse. You might feel rejected or betrayed at some point in the future. You might feel disrespected. Know this, your marriage was not a mistake you made. You're married, your marriage was not a mistake you made. Your marriage was the grand design of the sovereign creator king. And so maybe you're, you're sitting in one of those sinkholes right now and it just feels awful. Know this, your marriage was not a mistake. It was the grand design. It was his activity to bring you together. It was the design of the creator king. And as you experience troubles, as you encounter hurt, as you, as you feel uh, just deeply within you disappointment, don't look for an escape route. Don't hit the eject button. Instead of looking for permission to get out, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Focus on the permanence of marriage. Focus on the design of marriage. The one flesh union. I will say this. If any of you, any single one of you are in physical danger. 
If you have been or you're being physically um, threatened or abused, this passage is not license and a command for you to be a punching bag. Please hear that. You need to walk up out of this service and call the police. Let your church leaders know. That's not okay. That is a a marring and a mockery of God's design that we have seen in Mark 10. It is not acceptable. To those of you who have gone through divorce, let me again reiterate, I'm not sure I can relate to all of your experiences. But I think this passage has at least two implications for your lives. I want you to see if you see them here. First, unless your spouse has gotten remarried, you are still in a one flesh union with that man or that woman. And you should pray for and seek for reconciliation with the one to whom God has joined you. That may seem not only silly and laughable, but undesirable and objectionable. I hear that. But the God who created life, the God who raised Jesus Christ, our Savior from the dead, the God who did the miracle of making two one can do this. I believe he desires to do it in your marriage, in your one flesh union. Perhaps reconciliation may not work out. Pray and seek as, as you may, you know, try as you may. Perhaps your spouse already gotten remarried. I think what we see here is that the permanent nature of this one flesh union calls you to remain as you are. And I think this calls upon the church. This lays a, a, a big burden at the feet of your church family. Because church, we're gonna to need to, to love for and care for and provide for and invest in men, women, and families as they trust God to continue as they are. Well, my family's okay. God has knit us together in this body to love, care for, support, provide for those with whom he's made us one in Christ. Let me also say this. Those of you who have, have gone through divorce, you are not damaged goods. Can you, can you just say, you are not damaged goods. You are not spiritual unredeemables, right? All those Every one of those who have trusted in Christ, have repented of their sin, their guilt, their wrongdoing, are found blameless in Christ, blameless, spotless. There are no second 
class Christians based on this action in the past or that action in the past. No. You can sleep well tonight in God's grace. If you've now trusted in Christ, we see you merely as brother and sister. Finally, let me address those who have gone through a divorce and and have been remarried. There's been several times people have approached me or one of the elders and upon hearing such a passage and wonder if it's proper, the proper course of action is to get divorced from their current spouse and go back and seek reconciliation with their first spouse. No, absolutely not. We don't compound error by taking further missteps. And what we just saw from Deuteronomy 24 is that's actually prohibited, right? It's, it's very clearly spelled out there on, on the page. Remain as you are. Well, you say, well, what are my decisions then? Well, recognize your part in, in, in whatever wrongdoing took place and commit to, to honoring and loving and obeying Jesus Christ from this day forward, Don't carry guilt and shame. Again, all those who have trusted in Christ and have repented of their guilt, their wrongdoing, their sin, are are completely blameless and spotless in Christ. And are members of the body of Christ, are heirs of eternal life, are partakers of the glory that is in Christ Jesus. So again, sleep well tonight. Live richly in God's grace. Honor and serve your, your spouse now. Celebrate the beauty that God has created out of ashes. That's what you're called to do. See, Mark 10 tells us that discipleship is marked by a refusal to destroy what God has designed. And the permanence of the one flesh union is not important because it's a moral whipping post. Like it's something to, to whip people with. The importance of this one flesh union, it it finds its nature in that it points to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, the message of Christianity. And I want to just read Ephesians chapter 5, because here Paul very clearly tells us that that is the function of marriage. Ephesians 5, you can find it on page 978 of your pew Bible. Verse 22 and following say this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So instructions on wives, how to live. Now we're about to hear instructions on husbands, how to live. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated himself, his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. 
And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is about Jesus and his people, Christ and the church. Paul says marriage is meant to be a pointer to, a a faint shadow of. It's meant to display and describe the relationship of Christ and the church, the gospel, right? The permanence of the marriage, the one flesh union, is a shadow of the unbreakable commitment God makes to his people in Christ. That's why it's so important. Because we're, we're either... We're either telling the truth about God's commitment to us in Christ by its permanence through rough times, or we're telling some fairy tale version that's not true by walking away when things are tough. And that's not what Christ does with his people. In the, in the face of their sin, Christ sacrificed his life for his bride. In response to his undeserved love, his bride, his bride serves him and honors him. This is the good news. Good news that isn't changed by our unworthiness or our unloveliness day to day. Good news that is based completely and solely on an unchanging God, an immutable God, and therefore will not break his covenant commitment to us and cast us away. And some of us haven't experienced that in our own marriage. We haven't seen that in our parents' marriages. But you can know that you're going to have absolute security in your marriage to our groom, Christ Jesus, because he will not turn his back on us no matter how unlovely we become. If you feel, if you've been listening to Mark 10 and you feel the weight of it, you feel maybe some condemnation and guilt, the thing to do is not to minimize or explain it away, to to get rid of its standard, but to instead own your wrong and carry your condemnation to another. Carry your condemnation to the cross. Embrace the one who became a curse and a condemnation for us, for our failure, for our sin, for our shame. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what marriage points to. That's why marriage is so important. Discipleship is marked by a refusal to destroy what God has designed to display his covenant, his unbreakable covenant of grace. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we thank you that when we were unworthy, when we were unlovely, while we were your enemies, Christ died for us to purchase us, to redeem us, to save us, to make us his own. 
Father, we thank you that the covenant of grace does not depend upon our works or our merits or our efforts, but on Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. As we sang before, Father, we don't understand why we should gain from the reward of Christ. There's no answer to give. It doesn't make sense. And, you've, and yet you've made us lovely by your love. You've made the unlovely lovely by your love. So, Father, I pray that as we think about marriage, whether we're single, whether we are currently married, whether we've been divorced or we are remarried, that we would seek to honor and glorify your commitment to your people by the way we live our lives. May we see our marriage as a response to your great grace and love. Give us strength by your spirit to do this to do this incredibly hard work. Make us gracious people because of your grace lavished upon us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.